0: This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by AdFontis Media, home of the Interactive Media Bias Chart. The Interactive Media Bias Chart lets students and teachers search bias and reliability ratings on more than 1,200 news and news-like sources, whether text, TV, or podcast. Search a limited number for free or upgrade to get enhanced or unlimited access for your students and faculty. Find out more about AdFontis and sign up for a free pilot at EdCuration.com.
1: You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources,
0: practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We
1: have the big texts that are totally going to push their thinking.
0: your host, Christy Hemingway, and our guest today is Erin McNeil. Erin is nationally recognized as an expert on policy related to media literacy and as an advocacy leader. As founder and president of Media Literacy Now, a national education policy initiative, Erin is leading an initiative in states across the country to ensure that all K-12 schools are teaching a comprehensive set of of media literacy and digital citizenship skills. Media Literacy Now has provided guidance and resources to advocates in more than two dozen states who have educated hundreds of legislators and education policymakers, and helped enact 18 laws in nine states. Erin's background is in journalism, having written on a wide range of topics from pandemics, disasters, local politics to environmental and economic policy. I couldn't wait to talk to Erin about this frustration we all feel of not knowing who or what to believe. And also how we can prepare the next generation to be well-informed and discerning citizens who don't just throw their hands up and surrender to the fake news frenzy. I asked her to lay a foundation for our conversation by defining what we mean by media literacy.
1: We, media literacy now, like to define it as the ability to decode media messages, and that includes understanding the systems in which they exist, and then to be able to assess the influence of those messages on ourselves and our society in terms of our thoughts, uh, feelings, behaviors, attitudes. And then a key part is to be able to create media thoughtfully and conscientiously.
0: So media literacy is kind of a new thing. It's definitely a new trend or a new field in education. Why has media literacy suddenly become an, an a thing, an issue, a need?
1: I think with the rise of the internet and social media, people have become a lot more aware of how these messages are influencing themselves and others and their children. We saw, for example... With Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica revelation a few years ago, that people's uh, information and how they had been interacting with this social media site—that they thought they were interacting with their friends and neighbors and just keeping touch with people—in touch with people, maybe finding out what's going on around them—that all of this information was getting sucked up, and the corporations or other players, players could actually analyze what they had done on this site and using very sophisticated behavioral techniques and psychology could figure out how to influence them in their thinking in terms of politics. And it could probably be used for other reasons. So that that really alerted
0: people. Let me refresh your memory on the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal because it was a while ago. Cambridge Analytica is a data mining firm that worked on Donald Trump's first presidential campaign. They improperly obtained access to between 30 and 80 million Facebook user profiles. The data allowed them to create psychographic profiles of voters and then customize messaging, gaining an unfair advantage by influencing voters. There was never conclusive evidence as to whether any voters were actually influenced, but it was a huge kerfluffle. And Mark Zuckerberg was very sorry. This was a major breach of trust, and, and I'm really sorry that this happened.
1: There were other things going on. There was a study of middle school students that showed that they really couldn't discern between real information and advertising or news and advertising or or promoted posts or or websites so there were a lot of things going on just a few years ago where it became really clear we were also realizing that just about anybody could reach us and our kids at any time and that our kids could be could be reaching anybody in the world at any time so this ability for people to go directly to all of these children corporations governments creditors of all kinds could reach our kids directly while they're sitting in their bedroom or with their friends i think was really eye opening and that's that's a really big game changer right there so,
0: so when we talk about literacy media literacy though are we and i think we are but we're talking about the responsibility on both sides right so it's it's the responsibility of the consumer to be well informed and discerning and to understand how to analyze and filter the messages that are coming, but then it's also policy for the distributors of that information. Am I right?
1: Well, the the way that the distributors of the information behave is something that we all have to talk about and come up with solutions for as a society. I think that it's very tricky to talk about what are the responsibilities of say, corporations who are creating media and individuals who are creating media, governments who are creating media. It's really the Wild West right now it's out there. It's the internet. is It's global. Anybody could be putting out a message from any place. So for us to say in Massachusetts, we have a policy about how media creators can produce or distribute their message, it's almost meaningless. So we—we we, it just emphasizes how important it is for the individuals to understand what's happening when they're seeing a message whether it's online or out in the world we have to prepare our our children because there's we don't know what's next every day almost it seems like there's there's some new advance in communications technology where for example video is being manipulated to make people that you are familiar with tom cruise for example barack obama they these people are saying things that somebody else has made them say they're putting words in their mouth sometimes it can be very under- hard to understand what's 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 real and what's not and anybody can produce those from any place in the world
0: it is it's really frightening and it's it's frightening yeah. that the that the onus the responsibility falls on the consumer of information to discern you know what is true and what isn't because it's very hard to tell like you said I'm curious, even prior to the pandemic, experts were saying that this digital misinformation and disinformation was one of the biggest threats to civic health and the future of our democracy. And that has definitely compounded now in the last year and a half with COVID and the vaccine and all the messages going around about biomedical information. It seems urgent. It seems really... Extremely urgent, actually, to educate not only our students, but our whole populace on media literacy. But it almost feels too late.
1: Well, it's extremely urgent. Every day, people are being injured in some way. There's also a lot of positives to our, our media world. You know, just media literacy now, for example, we've been able to reach our audience because of the internet and social media, and and many people can easily find us. However, yes, it's it's definitely urgent. We need to take action and whether that's media literacy education in combination with some kind of government regulation or policy, that's that's something that we have to figure out and it starts with education.
0: What I want to know is the reason why media literacy has become your work in the world and your battle cry.
1: There are several things in my life that converged. Part of it is my work as a journalist and starting to see that people in general just really didn't understand the key role of journalists and, and news organizations in protecting and upholding democracy, providing the, the information that we need as a society to make decisions for ourselves. In our democracy, we talk about government by the people and for the people. So it's our government. And we need to have good, solid, trustworthy, credible information so that we can discuss solutions. And that comes from the work that journalists do. And people just were not really understanding that it was something more than just say, entertainment. So, that was a key part of my journey to media literacy as a solution. And then another key part was having children and seeing the influence of media on them and how the messages that they were seeing were telling them who they could be and who they are and often imparting values that were certainly not mine, and not the ones that I wanted them to be absorbing because they're little sponges and they are absorbing everything they see. And they don't necessarily know that some message is not just handed down from God. It's uh, created by another person who's made decisions about what they want you to do or think after seeing this message. The sexualization of of girls and female characters in their media. Mm -hmm would be very infuriating um and they were too young to talk about it really and then commercialization of so much of children's toys and products so there's there's characters from television on everything from backpacks to blankets and it just to me stifles the imagination and turns children into little consumers. So those are two of the the key issues that really came together for me as media literacy being such an important part of the solution.
0: Would you say that a lack of media literacy is responsible for a lot of the divisiveness in our country right now? It seems like that's true.
1: I definitely believe that. It's very hard to have any kind of really productive conversation about solutions to our problems. If people are working from a different set of facts, it's okay to have different beliefs. But if some people, for example, believe everything they see online, and some people believe nothing that they read, and can't be convinced that anything is any particular fact or situation is true, then how can we possibly have any kind of productive discussion about solutions to the problems that we're facing?
0: Well, and that it seems like that is what is happening. A lot of people are simply choosing to tune out, remain uninformed because current issues are so divisive and they don't know what sources to trust. And um, there's even experts have even, it sounds like, have come up with a term for this called truth decay. And um, I read, I think, in something that you sent me, a study of college students that indicated this growing trend that because they don't, they're unable to sort through what's true and false, they just have developed this general mistrust of everything. So like you said, where do you start a conversation if, if you don't trust anything, if you don't trust any sources? And I'm wondering... How can there be such contrasting information being reported on such important issues? Where does it come
1: from? Do people just
0: make this stuff up?
1: (laughs) Yes, in some cases. And thats it's so important for people to understand that, yes, anybody could make anything up and put it online. So you need to have the skills to understand what's a source, how to find credible sources and what are the... What are the ways that you can tell? How are there widely divergent reports on different subjects? I don't know. Maybe we should start with some of the media literacy questions and say, well, I'm looking at this message and it's completely opposite of another, say, news article that I I read earlier. Who created this message? That's one of the key questions. And why? Is it here for profit? And who's making money and how are they making money? So we learned, in fact, that Some of the messages around treatments for COVID-19 are being promoted by groups or individuals who were able to find a way to make a profit on the sale of those medicines or on the sale of consultation services.
0: And how did you find that out?
1: Well, I read it in a credible news source, (laughs) which... I think was possibly Reuters. Our friends at Fonte's Media, they they do analyze news sources and they have a set of criteria that help us to that help them to determine who's credible and who's credible. More, more biased and less biased. So that's one thing is you can look at others who have taken the time to really analyze some of these sources.
0: Because there are still accredited journalists that have to follow guidelines and for, and they're responsible and accountable for how they report and spin information
1: journalists put their names on their articles in the in the newspaper they put their their names on their their broadcasts their faces on their television broadcasts so they are in a way responsible for and and accountable for what they're producing now we don't have in the United States hard and fast guidelines that tell journalists what they must do to produce credible, valid news. There's a tradecraft, so to speak, that good journalists will follow.
0: That is the sound of my idealism shattering. Wait, we don't have hard and fast guidelines for journalists? How can this be? I remember when Mike Finkel got fired from the New York Times Magazine for falsifying sources back in 2002. And as a side note, then Christian Longo murdered his own family, stole Mike Finkel's identity and went on the lam in Mexico. And Mike wrote a book about it, True Story, Murder Memoir, Mia Culpa. And the whole thing got made into a movie with Jonah Hill and James Franco. But my point is that Mike Finkel lost his career over it. So what has happened to journalism in the last 20
1: years? It takes some skills to, to figure out which ones are, are actually credible news and which ones are not. It's not the, the best way to do media literacy education just to have one class at, at, in 12th grade, say, or it's a habit that needs to be developed. It's a, it's yes. a habit of inquiry
0: so rather right. than it just being a class this is where we study media literacy and what we do in media literacy never leaves this room it's a skill that they learn to apply across other content areas social studies science really life i would i would guess right that's what we're going for
1: exactly i would start teaching media literacy skills as early as possible and say kindergarten and start to just develop those skills of Asking questions about the media that we're seeing, the the whether it's images or stories of various types, even if it's on video games or cartoons. Um, starting to understand that this message was created by a person, they made certain choices, things were left out. You
0: started talking about the questions that you teach students to ask when they're evaluating a source, you said, who wrote it? Why did they write it? What did they have to gain? So you specify in your materials and on your website that there are five key questions. Can you just reiterate
1: for our listeners what those questions are? Sure. So the Center for Media Literacy has been a real leader in, in creating that, that the, the curriculum and the, the guidelines. So what they say is, The five key questions are, number one, authorship, who created this message? And then they ask, what creative techniques are used to attract my attention? So that goes to manipulation and persuasive techniques, even color, quickly moving versus slowly moving uh, images, music. Number three is audience. How might different people understand this message differently from me? So people start to understand that maybe a message that they put out about themselves on Instagram is not the same as the message that people are receiving about them. They may, they may think they're saying one thing and people, their audience is maybe getting a different impression than the one intended. Content is number four. What lifestyles, values, and points of view are represented in or omitted from this message? So what's left out? Is a key question, and then number five is purpose. Why is this message being sent? And one thing that they emphasize at the Center for Media Literacy is that most media messages are created for power and or profit. That's
0: really helpful. And when we're talking about media, we're including all types of media. So social media is a big focus and concern, I think, for all of us because current research is showing that that teens especially are spending an exorbitant amount of time on social media and absorbing all of those messages from social media. So that's included when we talk about media literacy, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Social, Social media is a big one and it's so influential right now.
0: Yeah. And so... Your website says that many media messages contribute to public health issues like obesity, bullying and aggression, low self-esteem, depression, negative body image, risky sexual behavior and substance abuse, among other problems. And, you know, my generation, we talk a lot about the research that just shows that you are, people are less happy when they've been spending time on Instagram or Facebook because we have this comparison that happens about our life and what everybody else's lives look like on social media. So it's contributing to a lot of those things. I'm wondering can if you can talk about specifically how it does that, how it's contributing negatively to those issues.
1: There's so many factors and there are so many messages and images that we're seeing every day. You know, I remember when I was A teenager, and I used to get a magazine that was it was Seventeen magazine. I would get it, and I I would right away. I would page through it and look at the ads and the articles about all these tips for just in a way to be to be better, to dress better, to look better, mostly. And one day I realized, you know, I get this magazine, I leaf through it, and I just feel really crummy afterward. Yeah. So, I think a lot of teens and young people are starting to realize that this is the effect that this is having on them talking about some of these these public health issues let's look at vaping and the public health crisis that that has brought to us after so many years and so much effort to reduce smoking these devices were promoted to young people through movies through through music videos through the the marketing of Various flavorings. That's kind of a direct impact to public health. One of the key things is the sexualization of girls and women. Yeah. Girls are, are having, a, are showing a lot of these effects because of the constant sexualization in every form of media. Even today, it, we're more aware of it and a, a lot of people are pushing back, but we still see it in car from everywhere, from cartoons, from when children are young to adulthood in movies in advertising in magazines on billboards it's everywhere yeah and that contributes to to girls and women's low self-image yeah you and know i
0: do i'm having so many thoughts right now i do worry especially about our girls i was just thinking yeah. about this and talking to my daughter my college age daughter about it the other day because I have this, I've had this feeling that our girls are so much more progressive than we were they're with the me too movement and they don't remember what it was like to have to think about not being able to enter a certain profession because you were female you know that's just not part of their world they're so much more empowered but then in some ways they're so much less empowered because of these constant messages that are coming to them through social media and it's so contradictory it's impossible to escape from Aaron because I like to pull up meditation videos on YouTube. Somehow I'm in some kind of algorithm that causes yes. videos to pop up around aging, right? Yeah. You, and and I honestly don't think it would have ever even entered my mind. That the freckles on my hands and arms, because I spend a lot of time outside, I'm a gardener and I like to ride my bike and, you know, but I don't even think it would ever have occurred to me that like, this is something to worry about. These are hideous. If I hadn't been constantly told by every single ad that pops up on YouTube, that this is something to be concerned about. I would have have never even thought of that. Like, who cares? It's so frustrating to me because I can't make them go away. They won't stop. It's like something that follows you around
1: like a ghost. (laughs) It's I I agree completely. It's it's so unfair. So think of that message to you. And it's not just to you, but it's to other people in your circle. So it's not just you saying, well, I don't like those spots and I'm just going to ignore the ads because you know that other people are seeing those ads and looking at your hand and saying, oh, she's got those spots. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine now you're a child or a teenager and the same messages are going out about, you know, you're seeing these messages about something that's wrong with you. And everybody else is seeing this message about something that's wrong with you. And so you it's like that it, the message is calling you out. Yeah, it's it's you're, there's something wrong with you. Everybody knows you need to do something about it. There's this constant barrage. And then the girls themselves and and I don't mean just girls, but for in this example, a girl will post on her Instagram page, a highly filtered picture and will, you know, put out this message about themselves, maybe a sexualized picture because of all these messages that they're getting about this is what is valued about them in society. Mm So it goes both ways. You know, it's this multi-layered problem. And where does it come from? The marketing today is so much more sophisticated. Billions of dollars have gone into researching our psychology and learning how to turn it against us. So it's just like you say, we have the sense that all of those problems are gone. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there are these powerful forces, these marketing forces that are working against that, that progress to sell things.
0: Yeah, because we can talk about what we want our social messages to be, but these people want to sell stuff and they're going to do whatever it takes to sell
1: stuff. Yes. And they have huge resources. So the idea that, you know, individuals, individual parents can have some sort of effect on their own child. It's really hard for them to push against this tidal wave.
0: So I'm wondering about, I'm thinking of the comparison of like an eating disorder versus alcoholism, right? So the goal for an alcoholic is to quit drinking, but somebody who's struggling with something like an eating disorder, because our kids are addicted, they're addicted to social media and we are too, you know, yeah. I, I don't let myself off. I don't engage much in social media, but I, I have totally experienced the inability to shut it off once I get sucked in. So they're addicted. So, but somebody who's struggling with say an eating disorder, the solution can't be to stop eating right so what's the solution for this social media addiction that they have because what you just described to me about the girl who is posting pictures of herself filtered pictures of herself it's like feeding the monster that wants to kill you you know yeah how do you get away from it because they're not just going to shut it off
1: i think that in this case we can think about it as your media diet. And it helps the media literacy skills that we're looking for include that understanding of how this media consumption affects you physically, mentally. That's part of media literacy, understanding the effect that it's having and understanding that you can make a change or that maybe there is a change to be made. There's various ways to approach that. My friend, Joni Ciani, has created a a film called Selling Your Soul. This is one way to approach the problem, talk about it, understand how it's affecting you, and then maybe turn it off for a time and see how you feel and see what effect that has on you physically and mentally. So it's like, I'm going to stop eating sugar for a while and see if I feel better. And then maybe I'll add a little bit in and see if, you know, I can just have a little bit. It's something, you know, like that, like your your media diet is, yeah. is something that we can examine
0: without binging. If you're looking for a great tool to integrate media literacy skills and help students evaluate news sources, today's sponsor has just what you need. Hi, this is Vanessa Otero, founder and CEO of AdFontas Media. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation podcast. At Ad Fontes, we believe junk news is like junk food. And just as junk food has caused health epidemics in our country, junk news is causing polarization and misinformation epidemics. That's why we've created our Media Bias Chart educational tools, so students can learn how to make better, healthier choices about the news they consume. AdFontes has both free and paid subscriptions. Find out more at EdCuration.com. I want to just turn the corner a little bit to talk about and go back to talking about reliability of of messaging. What is the actual process that somebody goes through to learn how to compare sources, determine reliability, and, and maybe even fact check?
1: One key step is what we call lateral research. So, a lot of students in tests have been shown to, if they're asked to analyze, say, a website, they'll really look closely at each page of the website, check the about page, read it in detail. Also, even researchers and others, adult researchers will do this. But it's been determined that a really more effective way to analyze a message or a site is is immediately open a new tab and Google it. Start to see what else is out there about this subject, about this organization, about this website, about this news article. So for example, somebody on my Facebook feed had posted a message about George Floyd and it was it was very negative and I had never heard anything about this. So I immediately started to Google the subject and could find absolutely nothing on it. And then I took the photo that was part of this message and put it into Google image search. And it came up in a Spanish newspaper in Spain about an attack that had happened to somebody a couple of years ago. It had absolutely nothing to do with the George Floyd and was not even in the US. So people can, anybody can post anything. Okay. Yeah,
0: and in that situation, it doesn't sound like you even had to search very far to discover that the that what you were reading was was bogus or outdated. Right.
1: exactly. If, if, right. if this were true, if who was this person who found out this information that nobody else knew? So, if this were actually news that were being reported, with that was being reported by other news sites i would have found it right away on associated press or reuters mm-hmm. and it was nowhere to be found so it was it was really yeah that part was quite easy it's just just lateral lateral research is probably your first step another key step i think even before you start to do the lateral research is check your emotions if it's causing you to be upset mad especially happy especially angry that's a sign that you need to check it out because that's one of the persuasive techniques is, is appealing to emotions.
0: And so, you know, you're being manipulated when your emotions start to get involved.
1: You can be suspicious. You can suspect that you might be. Huh, That's a really good tip. This
0: seems like a an exercise that would be very helpful for not only students, but for families to do together. I mean, I know there are a lot of families out there that argue about politics and... Yeah the messages coming through the media and they rely on different sources. seems like something that would be helpful for them to practice together. And Erin, you work in the realm of policy. So what are the current policies around media literacy? Does it vary state to state, district to district? Is there a federal policy? Where are we at
1: with that? Well, it varies quite a bit state to state. We don't have anything on the federal level right now okay states are the ones that set their own education policy. We haven't reached you know what we'd say is is a really solid comprehensive media literacy example in any of the states but we definitely have leaders. Washington State has been one of the leaders in providing tools for for teachers and legislative leadership that elevates media literacy as a public policy priority, which can tend to unlock resources. We've also seen Colorado taking steps to ensure that students K through 12 are getting these essential life skills. It surprises some people to learn that Ohio, Florida, and Texas are the states that have the strongest policies in terms of requiring that media literacy skills be taught across the curriculum And across the grades. Now, that doesn't mean that it actually is happening, but it is in policy so that advocates in those states can put pressure on the departments of education in those states.
0: Yeah, that is interesting to know that those are the states leading the charge. I'm proud that my home state, Colorado, is one of those. As schools look for those materials, because it's one thing to create a policy, but then you have to have resources for teachers. So as schools and districts look to adopt evidence-based literacy, media literacy materials, what qualities and criteria should they be looking for?
1: And is there a lot to choose from out there on the market? There is a lot to choose from. There have been decades worth of research and curriculum development. So our model bill, which is the first step on the journey of a state to ensuring that there's media literacy education in the schools. This model asks the state itself to begin the process of identifying the curriculum, the standards, the resources, the professional development training that's needed in that state. And it can vary from state to state depending on the culture of that state. So we don't like to impose on any state or school district, any particular curriculum. Is the best way
0: to implement this? So I've, I've talked to a lot of providers of social-emotional learning, which is also a big push right now in education. And what we know is that the best way to implement social-emotional learning is to have it integrated throughout a student's day in all of the different content areas so that it just becomes the lens through which they view all of their learning this feels like the same thing. I absolutely agree. Yes. Yeah, this should be a component
1: of something that every teacher teaches. It needs to be integrated and all of the teachers would, it would be best if we could get training, professional development for all the teachers currently working and for pre-service training. We'd like to see certification and media literacy happening before teachers start. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's like, very much like literacy, you need to be able to read to learn. Yeah, it's critical thinking skills. You need to to use this sort of literacy skill in all of all of the things that you're learning and doing. And are there districts and schools doing it that way? There are role models of people who are doing this. Well. <laughs> they are out there. There's some of them are starting from scratch. We learned about a school in in. Minnesota that's starting from scratch to ensure that it's a new school system and they're they're starting with media literacy it needs to be integrated into everything they do. There's a lot of re, of research that we'd like to do to find out where the schools are doing this, where the districts are that are are doing this and and what the results have been. Okay. It's not something we have the resources to do right now. I'll check back. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, in a year or so. But what would you say to the teacher administrator listening about just the urgency of this and also the benefits of including media literacy in the
1: curriculum at every level? I think teachers and administrators are seeing the negative effects, certainly, of social media. For example, they're from everything from fights that start on social media that make it back into the school and they're dealing with this. So it's taking time from instruction and it's causing students to have trouble focusing on learning it's really having a, an effect and and teachers are seeing this they're also just seeing that that sort of addiction that inability to to put down some device and pay attention it's clearly an issue that administrators and teachers can see and understand as a problem i'm not sure that everybody has come to the realization that media literacy skills are the solution or part of the solution. So our message is that we need to work on those media literacy skills and help teachers and help school districts to get the resources they need and get the training they need so that they can start to integrate these these skills into their, into their day and into the way they teach. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like, domesticating Frankenstein in a way, right? So we've created this monster and now we have to figure out how to tame him. To help you in that endeavor is today's sponsor, AdFontis Media, home of the Media Bias Chart, as well as the Suma News Literacy Course, introducing students to the chart's methodology. Secondary English language arts teacher Donna Hyatt of Marion, North Carolina writes... This will be my second full school year teaching media news literacy in a secondary setting. I want to express how much I have learned from teaching this skill set to my students. I have taught it to five different classes now and each seem to have enjoyed it while learning to move beyond a novice news consumer. You can learn more about AdFontis Media's Media Bias Chart, Educator Editions, as well as the Suma course, Introducing Students to the Charts Methodology at EdCuration.com. Just click the request info button to get started, or just click the link in the episode notes. I can tell you that their media bias chart has improved conversations in my own household. You'll also find links for Aaron McNeil and Media Literacy Now. You can access all the other episodes of this podcast, as well as our professional learning explorations, our certified ed trustees program, our blog, and our webinar series at edcuration.com. If you'd like to share a topic or resource with our audience, reach out through our website. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so grateful for a star rating on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll join us again next week to reshape learning with the Ed Curation Podcast.